This is Future You with Jeff Salingo and Michael Horn. Hello and welcome to another episode of Future You. I'm joined with uh, my co-host, uh, Michael uh, Horn, and we're here at the annual uh, ASU GSV Summit um, in beautiful but cold uh, San Diego. And we're joined uh, by one of the, the leaders of the summit, uh, who is the president of Arizona State University, uh, Michael Crow. Um, it's great to have you here with us. Thanks a lot, Jeff. Happy to be here. Um, so a question that we ask all of our guests uh, is uh, most people know you as the president of, of ASU. They probably know a little bit about your background when previous ASU at Columbia, but how did you get started in higher ed? Why, why higher ed as, a, as an industry for you? Uh, so long ago when I was an undergraduate, I uh, had an opportunity to, uh, for whatever reason, when I was 19 years old, these guys hired me to be the translator of a really complex technical project with the Iowa State Legislature. So the university project was called the Iowa Coal Project. It was during the energy crisis, and they were trying to find a way to be more reliant on American uh, fossil fuels. And, but at the same time, restore the land when you extracted it to the higher levels of agricultural oh. productivity than uh, it, it occurred naturally. And for whatever reason, I got picked to be the guy that was going to go down to the legislature as a kid two days a week as the technical representative of this project. And so I got involved in politics. I got involved in science. I got involved in solving problems. And then when I saw all these things working together, I knew that there was a class of institution that actually worked to produce things that didn't exist ideas, solutions, whatever. And, and I just got hooked from that moment. I said, well, this is what I want to do. <laughs> well, so uh, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm a special advisor to you at, uh, at Arizona State, where I uh, run a program called the uh, uh, Academy for Innovative uh, Higher Education Leadership. And one of the questions, Michael, that I get asked all the time is, is how does ASU do it, right? Um, and, and some people wonder about the role of culture versus the role of, of strategy and design. Uh, in ASU's uh, transformation. So as you look back on, on, on all the changes at, at ASU over the time that you've been there, how much do you attribute it to cultural change and how much do you contribute it to, uh, attribute it to strategy and, and, and design? Well, culture drives design, culture drives strategy, culture drives outcomes. So all those things are related. We sort of knew that going in, and so what we offered, what we proffered with our initial idea for the new American university was a differentiated culture. That differentiated culture, then, if you're going to move in that direction, requires a differentiated design to get there. Uh, and uh, those two things have to go uh, hand in glove with each other uh, to be able to advance. There's no other way to, to produce organizational change. There's two ways. New organization, separate culture, new organization or cultural transformation through redesign. So we, we chose cultural transformation through redesign. Now, oh, I, I was going to jump in and just say, so this new American university that you all have been creating mm -hmm. and created, you've described as sort of a fifth wave, uh, mm -hmm. if, if you will, of, of innovation in, in terms of universities that America has had more broadly. Right. Can you just talk through that idea and, and, and what are other examples of the fifth wave institution, institutions besides ASU? Well, quickly, just to build up to what the fifth wave is. So yeah, the first perfect. wave were the American colonials, Harvard, Princeton, Columbia, places like that, that were unique manifestations of a British model. They weren't the British model, but they were unique manifestations. There's hundreds of those schools still around and moving along well. Wave two was the idea of a public college, uh, a public, uh, what we called Greek Academy. There's hundreds of those uh, still uh, cooking along. Wave three was a hugely unique American model, which was the land grants, which was colleges uh, focused on the practical, colleges focused on the children of the working class. 
The fourth wave was the extremely unusual uh, emergence of the American Research University, Mm -hmm. which was a combination of the British College and the German Technical Institute being brought together. And the fifth wave, as we call it, is the emergence of a new kind of scalable, adaptable, uh, high-speed, transformational uh, kind of public uh, university. Uh, there are a few that are emerging. Uh, uh, Mitch Daniels now allows me to refer <laughs> to uh, Purdue University as a new emergent fifth wave university. Uh, he's definitely moving on the notion of how do you build a scalable uh, uh, land grant. So he, he's a wave three land grant that became a wave four research that's now emerging as a wave five, not he, but Purdue. Right. Uh, other schools like uh, Florida International, a very large hmm. university, Central Florida, Georgia State, those would be three uh, southern institutions because of scale, because of uh, demographics, because of social scale and, and transformational drivers is are beginning to move in these directions. So there's a, a handful of schools that are out there. So the, some of those earlier waves you had described were uh, were defined by at the national level. You know, for example, the Morrill Land Grant Act, mm-hmm. which created the land grant uh, universities. Do you feel like we're now at another period of a massive change in the economy um, around the world that we kind of need that national? national uh, university, again, that, that idea of a, of a national plan for, for, for higher education? Well, not national university as in, you know, run by the federal yep. government, because that was defeated at the time the Constitution was written, written and five other times before 1850. And then in 1862, the Morrill Act was now transferring that responsibility to the states. And so the public university responsibility was transferred to the states. Uh, it is time for what we call national service universities, universities committed to the complexity and scale of the United States as a part of the mix. If every university just stays as a regional, if every university stays as a, as a narrowly scoped, unscalable thing, we can't build enough of those institutions. And so we need institutions that will embrace the broader national complexity and then use technology as a mechanism to scale and adapt to that social complexity. But how do we persuade people to that scale is good, right? Because in the U.S., we tend to equate equality in higher education, right or wrong, with small. We do that because the universities, uh, the original colleges were all uh, highly exclusive and state exclusive. So the model of success of the past was Really, you don't need that many people to go to college. College is really a thing for just a handful of people. And let's build schools that can take those handfuls of people and educate them. That changed a little bit over time, but not when you compare it to scale. So even the big public universities in the, in the states today, they seem big, but they're not big relative to the scale of these states. So if, if, if we go deeper on that scale question and you say, let me show you quality, how do you, how do you think about outcomes and actually proving efficacy given the immense scale that you all are driving toward? Well, that's relatively easy because you know uh, how your graduates are doing in the market. So they're, they're a knowledge product in the form yep. of a person going into a market. We have unbelievable uh, demand for our product. We have a really high performance for our, our people product in the market in terms of their compensation, their wages, graduate schools that they go to. So what we look at in terms of quality is we look at uh, what's the return on investment to the individual, which in our case averages 12% per year over an individual's lifetime, 23% for engineers, 7% for uh, teachers. And you're literally able to track that through public data, et cetera? Uh, We have uh, income data for uh, every graduate of our institution that still lives in Arizona, 227,000 individuals. Wow. And so we know their entire financial history, not personally, but uh, But at at aggregate level. Yeah, aggregate level. So the answer is yes. And so we have ROI data, we have return data. But in addition, we've also done the surveys on quality of life outcomes, 
We also know how we're doing. You know, uh, we're doing extremely well in all postgraduate awards, Fulbrights, Trumans, Marshalls, Rhodes, extremely well. I mean, as well as any set of institutions in the country. In fact, we're, for all of those, we're in the top handful of schools in the country. If you then look at um, em employment, employability, all these kinds of things. And so the interesting thing is what we found, in fact, is that uh, scale works to our advantage. Say uh, more. It, it works to our advantage because we allow, we, what, we're, what we're doing is we're expanding numbers of programs that is alternative pathways for students to learn in and for teaching, learning, and discovery to occur in. So if a program reaches a maximum size, well, that's its maximum size. And so then we move to another program and then to another program and then to another program. And so the quality of each individual program is determined by the faculty. Let's take uh, electrical engineering. Mm -hmm. So we offer an electrical engineering degree on campus. We have a couple thousand students with us in full immersion. We have 65 or so faculty members in that program, which is a part of one of our six engineering schools in a 21,000 student engineering college. So, so our, our engineering college is overwhelmed with demand right now, even at 21,000 students. The, those electrical engineering faculty members are among the top 10 in terms of funding for research, have 2,000 students on campus with them, which is larger than most engineering schools, and another 1,200 students online with them in the first accredited online undergraduate engineering degree for a different set of students, older students. Those 3,000-plus students and all of that research are going on. Basically, their level of productivity is just off the charts. So their productivity is very high, and then the efficacy, the impact on those particular students. I'd line up our electrical engineering graduates against any electrical engineering graduates anywhere in the, in the world. We're the number one employer, uh, number one source for employees to the Intel Corporation. We're a strategic ally with the Raytheon Corporation. We're strategic with Boeing and, and orbital sciences and so forth. And so the answer is we're not seeing any relationship that's a negative that's negative between scale and outcome so what's stunning about that is uh is just it goes back to the original conversation we were having about how do you get a university to move in that direction and embrace scale as as a function of quality and actually a function of really fulfilling a much broader mission for society it sounds like my my curiosity is always we look to you as just sort of a guru of innovation and that a lot of university presidents around the country I always say on speeches that there's probably a handful who want to be the, quote, next Michael Crow. How do you create an institution, though, that, you know, as you think about legacy and, and whenever you decide to do your next gig. They're looking at it, my gray hair. Hey, I might have more, right? So, but uh, ASU, uh, you know, how does it continue to be that beacon of in innovation in that new American university? How do you create the systems and the cultures so that it perpetuates? So go back to this, to this notion of these waves. And so, okay. so no one would say to any of the big land grants, well, how are you guys going to make it? So they, 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 they built culture, they built structure, they built purpose, they built design. You know, what we're talking about is the emergence of a new kind. Uh, you would imagine that out of the United States would come a research university community. That happened. You would imagine that some of those research universities then would figure out how to use technology and culture change to scale. So what will happen is that it won't just be ASU, but there will be a, a, a range of schools. It might be 10, it could be 20, it could be 30. It won't be many more than that, who will then begin to take on this broader set of, of broader educational and research objectives together. So... You know, to the question of, of, uh, of our legacy, you know, we're spending immense amounts of energy on uh, training the next waves of leaders, not only for ASU, but at other institutions. Hmm. Uh, we're spending huge amounts. Of, we, we've just created a position within the university called Knowledge Enterprise Architect. 
And uh, Manu Ipe is our faculty member who's in that role right now, and she's working on the design logic of the institution so that the the blueprints, if you will, for the university going Basically forward. Basically codifying yeah, this. So, yeah, yeah, codifying and then also um, uh, putting in place how does this design process occur. So what we're doing is we're, we're rethinking the the purely traditional model. So, yeah, we still have genetic material from Plato's Academy. We have genetic material from Cambridge. We have genetic material from Harvard and you know, uh, uh, President Elliott's effort to build the the, the manifest manifestly different uh, curriculum with the uh, with mm-hmm. the electives and so forth and so on. So we have all of that genetic material in us, and we're still writing genetic code. And so, in the writing of the genetic code, it's that process that one has to pass on to the to the next. Now, most institutions, for whatever reason, don't keep writing genetic code. They take their genetic material and they they manifest that. And so what we are, have figured out how to do and what we have to make sure that we maintain in the culture is the process by which the design activity can be continued. Michael, we've been at a lot of gatherings of college presidents over the last uh, couple of years, and the conversation always turns to where higher education is today and where it's going. And, and a number of presidents tend to look backwards, right? And they said, oh, if we only could have the f- level of funding we had and you know, the 1970s, if we only had, you know, these issues to deal with, um, we would be so much better off. As you think about the future, and we've also been at gatherings about the future of work, um, as you think about the future both of higher education, of the economy, of work, do you tend to be a, a, an optimist about that uh, or, or a pessimist? And, and how, Because a lot of people, I think, in higher education are pretty pessimistic, it seems, uh, about the future, which is kind of surprising because higher education has always been really good about uh, creating uh, the future, maybe not predicting it, but creating it. You know, a weird thing about one of the things that, that as I from time to time have thought about, like, how did I get in this business of academia, the, the only discouraging thing to me is the element of, of – uh, negativity that comes with the skeptical mind uh, and so it just drives me crazy and so I'm a big believer in Steven Pinker's work uh, mm-hmm. and his idea of enlightenment now and you know how did we get here and so we got here through the efforts uh, Will- William Manchester uh, wrote this uh, fantastic book uh, called The World Lit Only by Fire uh, that book uh, uh, talked about how we got out of the dark ages it was academics and monks and educated people and the transference of knowledge and so forth. And so, so our institutions have an absolutely essential role to, to shape the future. In fact, I, if someone asks me what are the, what's the business that we're in, what does a university or a college do, we are protectors of the future. That is our assignment. We are the adaptive mechanism in the broader social system that we're a part of. What that means then is that those that look to the past, that's a fatal calculation. If you look to the past and only think, when, when could we get those resources? Well, those universities were mostly white, mostly male, uh, very different from the society as it is today. So there's no reason to even look backwards. What one needs to do is look and say, with Harvard as a, as a, as a research university, how does the Harvard become great in the 21st century, which will be different than the 20th century? How do we build these new kinds of universities, and how do we make them work? And so this notion of, of innovation and driving forward has got to be, has got to be uh, normatively positive. One last question. Uh, you're always recommending books to me about to read. Everybody I talk with at, at ASU says you're always like leaving them these large volumes. Uh, uh, you're you're the comes of a teacher, I guess, in that in that way. So what are, what are you in terms of an assignment? What are what are you reading now? What do you think that people and listening to this podcast who are thinking about the future of higher education, you know, what do you think they should be uh, thinking about or reading right now? Well, I'm, I'm always reading four or five uh, history books at the same time. I just finished the book on Grant. I finished this fantastic. Uh, 
fantastic book on uh, Napoleon. Uh, uh, you know, the book Enlightenment Now by Pinker, I think, is fantastic. If you don't have time to read it, just study all the figures and ask yourself why you've been so stupid and why you complain about anything. Uh, and so, because that, you know, why would you complain about anything once you look at uh, where we are? Yeah. And so I think that there's, there's power in, uh, in uh, reading things. I just ordered uh, 100 copies of the next issue of National Geographic, which is this uh, fantastic issue on race. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cover of the article shows twins. One is uh, dark complexion, one is light complexion. They're fraternal twins from the same mother with parents of the same uh, complexion. Uh, and so it's a, it, and what it does is it goes at and attacks in very important ways the, f- the fake notion that race is a biological thing as opposed to race is a sociological construct. So books and ideas that drive forward a deeper understanding of who we are and what we are and where we came from and how we're going to get there, those are, those are the kinds of things that I really get excited about. Uh, uh, there's some fantastic science fiction that's being written by uh, Kim Stanley Robinson where he takes... Uh, physical laws uh, and and follows them always as he thinks about the future. There's a book, uh, New York 2140, What Will the World Be Like Then in New York City, very different than now. Uh, There's a book, 2312, where he's uh, 300 years into the future, looking at where we are as a species and how we have evolved. Uh, There's uh, another book that he wrote called Aurora, which is about a a long-distance, multi-generational space journey that people go on. But the interesting thing about all of it is, is how he is scientifically and technologically accurate in how he portrays these things and then he articulates from those things um, uh, the way that literally who we are and what we are and how we get to where we're headed. That blending of uh, a humanistic view that you have with the optimistic sense of the future and what we can create and what we have created to this point uh, I think inspires us all and so thanks so much for joining us today. Appreciate it. Thanks. And uh, we'll be back on Future You. This episode of Future You was made possible with support from the Academy for Innovative Higher Education Leadership. The Academy is a partnership between Arizona State University and Georgetown University and is the premier training ground for those who aspire to senior leadership positions in higher education and those who want to lead organizational change at colleges and universities in the future. For more information and to apply to our next cohort, go to georgetown.asu.edu. This episode was also made possible with support from the Entangled Group, where innovation meets operations. Entangled is a venture studio focused on helping the education ecosystem transition to support the knowledge economy. We build companies and nonprofits that support higher education institutions as they innovate to carry out their critical missions for society in the 21st century. Welcome back to Future You, where we are live at ASU GSV in uh, sunny but slightly cold uh, San Diego, although I can't say it's cold because for me it's escaping Boston, Boston, (laughs) where we were having snow two days ago. So, you know, go figure, Jeff. But uh, delight to be back here uh, just coming off that conversation with Michael Crow. Wow, fascinating on so many levels. Uh, he, he strikes me as a Teddy Roosevelt type character of like the book a day sort of uh, mindset. But let's start with something, Jeff, um, that I'm curious about because you sit inside of Arizona, Arizona State for part of your uh, uh, week, um, you know, every week. 
what's the culture like from your perspective that they've built? Like, what, what's it actually inside the belly of the beast, so to speak? Um, I think the culture that uh, in, that uh, that he's built, and, and it's really around kind of these design principles, this charter uh, that they talk about uh, at ASU, where it's it's about you know who you include, not who you exclude, which is a, which is a big theme of his. It's around research, kind of for the public good, um, and everybody knows that, right? And that's to me is if you go to most college campuses and ask uh, anybody from the highest employee to the lowest employee uh, about the the mission of that university, um, they probably can't tell you what Mm -hmm. it is. Um, But if you go to ASU and you talk to anybody, they kind of know what their what their north star is right wow. they they know where they're focused and everybody is moving in that direction so even though it is this huge um, conglomerate in many ways right it's a huge bureaucracy what's amazing to me is that in some ways it's easier to work through than some of the other universities that I've that I've worked with because everybody knows why they're there and what they're doing now at that same time you know he's been there for 15 plus years now yeah. um, but there's a lot of people who were there well before him um, and many of them will be there afterwards and so I think one of the the dangers right now uh, not only at ASU but at many places is how do you avoid the backsliding of that culture, right? Because it's been such an innovative uh, place for so long is how do you avoid those, especially those people who've been there for a long time of trying to pull it back to where it, where it used to be. Yeah. And obviously we were, we were trying to ask that sort of in a, in a subtle, not subtle way of what happens and how do you preserve that legacy of innovation? Do you have a sense of that? Have they created the structures and, and things like that, that would outlast you know, such a big personality, frankly. Yeah, you know, you asked him, uh, yeah. you know, what's next? Uh, yeah. It's a question that he doesn't uh, usually answer. Yeah. Uh, but, but he, you know, he talked a little bit about some of the uh, the programs that he's putting in place, both internally and externally, to try to um, get the next generation of leaders, not only at ASU, but at other universities, kind of ready uh, for, for innovation. And so I think it's something that he's been focused on uh, over the last couple of years. You know, we tend to talk about succession planning in higher ed, and I think most people think of it as a list of names in a drawer. Um, and he doesn't see it that way. He sees it as, uh, as again, trying to create designers uh, of this knowledge enterprise, that, as, as he mentioned. So to me, it's about these programs that not only internally but externally that he's, uh, that he's trying, to, trying to create. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The one pushback I would have on him is he described, you know, you can innovate with an autonomous model or you can innovate the core. It seems to me that he's actually doing both of those things, whereas he said we're just innovating within the core, which is probably what you're supposed to say as a president. But, uh, you know, he's created Ed Plus, which is basically the division that's housed ASU Online, their innovation with Starbucks, where as a Starbucks employee, you can get uh, access to an Arizona State education paid uh, a lot of the innovation has come out of that uh, uh, realm, and they've also been innovating in the core, on campus, on ground programs as well, and they've been figuring out ways to expand across the country. Uh, so doing a lot of things, and they're featured very heavily in, in the book that I most recommend right now to people, which is a book uh, called Dual Transformation, about how do you uh, continue to transform and perfect the core position you yourself for success but at the same time they call it uh, transformation b launch this autonomous entity that will be the future of the institution and it seems to me he has managed that perfectly uh, uh from my perspective and 
Ed Plus could create that structure that outlasts such a charismatic leader as he has been with such a strong vision uh, that allows it to continue to uh, do what it does and sort of has an escape velocity all to its own. Yeah, and, and, and it helps them scale uh, uh, scale in a way that it would be difficult if they just did it from the uh, – uh, from the core, and you know, he talked a lot about scale. Yeah. Um, because you know, as I as I asked him, uh, you know, we tend to define uh, higher education or the the prominence of higher education in the U.S. by small size. Yep. Um, and he gave us that little history lesson. Yeah. Uh, of 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 institutions. But by the way, I was thrilled he did because I think often people say, "Oh, well, you know, Harvard's high quality," and I love the way he said it's high quality. Um, you know, because of sort of what they've created and who they serve and thing and, 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 and as you said, a history lesson. But then he gave us a bunch of measure, measures of how he thinks about quality and holy cow, they're pretty persuasive. Yeah. And, and so I think that, so how do we define, you know, given the U.S. News and World Report rankings drive sure. so much. And if you look at the top of those rankings, they're mostly small, uh, small colleges, even university, you know, colleges within universities uh, that are, you know, maybe uh, enroll 6,000, 10, Thousand, maybe at the most, you know, twelve or fourteen thousand. Right, that would be large for those That top would be rankings. large for those yep. top top rankings. Given the challenges that you know he discussed and other guests on Future You have discussed facing uh, American higher education and how we have to educate more people, how do we re kind of define this? How do we kind of have people rethink? Uh, uh, how do we define uh, you know success in in higher education? So it's not just about uh, small size, but that that institutions that are scalable, uh, like ASU, are are given more prominence. Yeah, I mean, I think that return on investment uh, metric is obviously a big one. How do you improve someone's life? Uh, distance traveled is something that our friend Ryan Craig talks a lot about, which I love. Which is. Uh, and it's totally synergistic with this notion of who you include, not who you exclude, meaning I don't care where you've come from. Can we take you the farthest path to uh, to, to launch you into a successful life? And uh, I, I think that's a very good way. You know, no one's figured out a, a great way to snapshot quantify it such that I get it in my gut and can say that's a great institution. But but the you know, the basic notion to be cynical for a moment is that, uh, you know, Harvard isn't necessarily great because of what they do while you're on campus, but because of what they do in the admissions office before right. you get there. And it's the signal that they give you the signal of that degree that leads to lifetime, uh, you know, employment and, and networks that you wouldn't have otherwise. Right, exactly. And, and I think what, you know, Michael and Arizona State, the endeavor that they're in is saying, we don't care about your background. Uh, fundamentally, we will take students wherever they are with what they have, and we will put the right levels of uh, access to, to educational opportunities in front of them and the right personalized supports. And I mean that both academically as well from a mentorship, counseling, career perspective uh, to get you where you want to go and to, to you know really build your passion and fulfill your potential. And it's pretty it's pretty compelling when you hear it that way. Yeah, I mean, so at the end there, we asked him about the books that he's reading, and yeah. he gave What'd us a whole of list of, of that. I mean, he is an, an incredible reader in terms of, uh, of, of, you know, giving us a stack of books sometimes. He's always writing me little notes about things I, I should be reading, and I'm thinking, I have no time to do this. Of course, he's a president, and he still seems to be able to, to do it. I mean, he, you know, as he— Yeah, I was he, reevaluating my day as I, I was listening to him. <laughs> you know, he, he talked a lot about science fiction, which, uh, you know, he talked about the optimism he has about the, about the future, and I think— a lot of uh, his views about the future of higher education and the future of the world are shaped by 
uh, by science fiction and that uh, that these big ideas that he tends to promote um, uh, uh, comes from that. But I also think he's a you know he's a student of history clearly because he talked about the Grant book and yep. and other books that he's been reading. But he's also a, a student of the history of higher education. Yes, right. The fact that he was able to tell us exactly how American higher education evolved and in the U.S. and you don't see that often. I don't think among college presidents these days, right? I think the Clark Kerr's of the world and others kind of understood where we've been and where we're going. And I think most higher education leaders today, uh, unfortunately, do not have a, a, enough of appreciation for, for the history of, a, of American higher education and how that uh, infrastructure and how that scaffold of the, uh, or, or the foundation of that will lead us to this next generation. Yeah, and I was struck by how he uses the history not as a, uh, a memory to go yes. back to, but a memory to understand and to build on and then to build the future that you want. Yeah, because I think most people in higher ed are very nostalgic. Yeah, it's um, nostalgic. You know, he's, he tends to be on, a, on the younger side for a president, right? So when he started at Arizona State, he was still in his uh, 40s. Yep. You know, the average age of a college president today, according to ACE, is you know someone, in, it's usually he, uh, in his 60s. And at the AAU universities, it's usually in the late 60s. And I think a lot of them... Uh, I think a lot of them uh, really harken back to a time when when there was greater public support for colleges and universities. The public thought more of it. We thought it was an individual good. You know, we thought it was a public good as well as an individual good. And I think we all harken back to that nostalgia, or they harken back to that nostalgia. And I think that his, as you said, his history is, is of higher education is thinking about how we can build this for the next generation. Yeah. So we might say he embodies the ethos of future you. Yes. Uh, and on that note, I'll just encourage all of you that are listening. Uh, if you enjoy the podcast, please rate us and subscribe to us wherever you are listening. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next time. And until then, thanks for joining us on Future You. Future You.